Today, Summit Church. Good. It's good to see you. The uh, the movie we're going to be covering today for the last part of our at the movie series is a movie called Wreck It Ralph. And you might have seen the clip and thought, I have no idea about this movie. That is okay. Uh, I'll explain it. I'll get into it in just a moment. Before I do that, though, there's a couple things I need to do. Uh, I want to say thank you. Um, how many of you have enjoyed the popcorn and the candy and all that kind of stuff during this series? Yeah? And um, Dave Oswalt, our janitor, has not enjoyed it as much. But... Uh, <laughs> But I'm glad you have enjoyed it. And I want to say thanks to uh, Bev Mack and the team of volunteers we have that have made sure the popcorn and candy and all that stuff is ready every week. Let's give them a round of applause. They're awesome. I'm so grateful for them. Uh, Kathy over at Kreps United Publications, uh, she has hooked us up with our gigantic Life magazine covers we had last week, like the, the Jackie Robinson baseball cards that are going to find their way into my office, um, uh, the, the, uh, the banners out in the lobby, a lot of different things you see around. They have helped us with that, and I'm so grateful for them and for Kreps. And then uh, the assorted bricks we have on our stage today, uh, I, I appreciate Don Huey bringing those, the Don Huey crew sitting up at the top over there. Thanks, Don. Appreciate you guys. Um, and so we've had a lot of people who've really helped us and just partnered with us and come alongside us with this series. Uh, the, the other night, a bunch of the softball girls were at our house. <laughs> and my, my, my nine-year-old said, let me do an imitation of my dad. And she went, <laughs> what's up with that? The highest form of flattery is imitation, so I'm okay with that. But um, this series has been so cool because we've seen so many new families that have come and gotten plugged in and connected to this church. And the reason for this series has been, um, number one, we want to make much of the name of Jesus. Amen. We, we want to make his name famous. And the truth is, sometimes the style that we have in church gets in the way of the message that we want to, want to portray. And so we wanted to make sure that what we did invited people who maybe were, were not happy with some of the more traditional styles of church, because there are people that have walked in this during, during this series that have said, I hate this, this is not for me, and that's okay. But there's been a bunch of people who have come in and said, you know what, this is not what I thought church was supposed to be like, and I just feel the presence of God, and they've gotten connected. And, and that's a win for me. That's really exciting. We've seen people saved every single service during this series, people giving their lives to God. And I've loved this series. I've had so much fun. And again... That has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with me. I just get to be, play a role and be a part of this thing. So I'm so excited for what God has done, what God's going to continue to do. Now, this is the thing. This is the challenge for you that call this church home. Um, you, you don't reserve occasions like at the movies or Easter to invite your friends and neighbors and loved ones to church, okay? These are just tools and vehicles for you to do that. But we want you to invite your friends every single uh, Sunday of the year. We want you inviting them to be part of this church, inviting them to be part of what God is doing here in Indiana. Uh, 
the, uh, there's a couple of resources. I haven't mentioned them yet, but there's two books that are in our bookstore. One of these is called The Stories We Tell, and this is a fantastic book. Um, if you're interested in the narrative of, that God is telling and through the medium of movies and pop culture, this is a great book to pick up. Uh, so if this series has kind of piqued your curiosity at all about how God speaks, not just through his word, but we can see his truth revealed through other areas as well. Go pick up this book in the bookstore. Uh, you won't regret it. It's a good book. You will enjoy reading it if you've been intrigued by this series. If you haven't liked this series, then do not pick up this book. You will hate it, okay? Um, but like I said earlier, the, the, the movie we're looking at today is Wreck-It Ralph, and the premise of Wreck-It Ralph is that, how many of you remember arcade games? Not like we play on our phones or like we play in our living room, but like you used to go to arcades when you were a kid. You remember that? I do. And I would go to arcades and I would take a roll of quarters and I would stand there for hours playing video games or playing Pac-Man and Galaga and things like that. And the premise of Wreck-It Ralph is that inside every one of those old arcade games, there is a real world. There is a world at work and there are real people living there. And, and in this story, uh, there's a character named Ralph who's the villain of a 1980s video game called Wreck-It Ralph. And his purpose is to go through and destroy things. And uh, he, the clip we're about to see, he is not very happy with his role in life, with his lot in life. And so I want us to take a look at this clip. And in, in, the, in this clip, he's, he's at, a, at a bad guy anonymous. It's a villain anonymous. It's called Bad Anon. And uh, all these villains from all these different video games are sitting in this group together just sh kind of sharing their problems. So let's take a look at this clip. Quitting time. I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't be feeling this way if things were different after work. But it is what it is. Good job, everyone. Felix and the Nice Landers go hang out in their homes, which he's just fixed, and everyone, you know. Uh, they go to their homes, I go to mine, which happens to be a dump. And when I say a dump, I don't mean like a shabby place. I mean an actual dump where the garbage goes and bunch of bricks and smashed building parts. That's, that's what I call home. I guess I can't bellyache too much. I got my bricks, I got my stump. It looks uncomfortable, it's actually fine. I'm, I'm good. But if I'm really honest with myself, I see Felix up there getting patted on the back, people giving him pie, and thanking him, and so happy to see him all the time. Sometimes I think, man, sure must be nice being the good guy. Nice share, Ralph. As fellow bad guys, we've all felt what you're feeling, and we've come to terms with it. Really? Right here? I'm Zangief, I'm bad guy. Hi, Zangief. Hi, Zangief. I relate to you, Ralph. When I hit bottom, I was crushing man's skull like sparrow egg between my thighs. <laughs> and I think, why do you have to be so bad, Zangief? Why can't you be more like good guy? Then I have moment of clarity. If Zangief is good guy, who'll crush man's skull like sparrow's egg between thighs? And I say, Zangief, you are bad guy. But this does not mean you're a bad guy. 
I'm sorry, I just, I, you lost me there. Zombie, bad guy. Hi, zombie. Zangief saying, labels not make you happy. Good, bad. You must love you. Yeah, inside here. Yeah. Oh, whoa, okay. Oh, all right, I get you. I get you. Watch out, it's dripping. Question, Ralph. We've been asking you to bat it on for years now, and tonight you, you finally show up. Why is that? I don't know. I just felt like coming. I mean, I suppose it has something to do with the fact that, uh, well, today is the 30th anniversary of my game. Happy anniversary, Ralph. Thanks, Satan. Uh, it's subteen, actually. Got it. But here's the thing. I don't want to be the bad guy anymore. with the program, Ralph. You're not going turbo, are you? Turbo? No, I'm not going turbo. Come on, guys. Is it turbo to want a friend? Or a medal? Or a piece of pie every once in a while? Is it turbo to want more out of life? Yes. Ralph, Ralph, we get it. But we can't change who we are. And the sooner you accept that, the better off your game and your life will be. Hey, one game at a time, Ralph. Now let's close out with the bad guy affirmation. I am bad, and that's good. I will never be good, and that's not bad. There's no one I'd rather be than me. Okay, gang, see you next week. Listen, I can't do snacks next Hang in there, Ralph. Hey, zombie, don't forget your hatchet. There you go. So, just for the record, the zombie was already dead, so when the guy pulled his heartbeat out, it was, he was already dead. He didn't kill the zombie, okay? So just, you know, you can save your emails. It's, it's okay. Um, but I think what, what Ralph was ex kind of trying to explain to the people in the group was something all of us have walked through at some point in our life, that we recognize that we are identified or defined in a certain way, and we say, I don't know that I want to be defined that way anymore. This is who I am or who the world thinks I am. This is who maybe I even think I am, but I don't like who I am, and I want to be something different. I think we've all experienced that at some point in our life. And Ralph said it so, so perfectly, said, I don't want to be the bad guy anymore. And that's what the title of today's message is, I don't want to be the bad guy. Because all of us at some point in our life have, have gotten to that place where we say, I'm a little bit dissatisfied with my life, with the way it is, the way it looks, and I wish I was something else. I wish I looked a different way. And there's a lot of different ways we can identify ourselves or define ourselves. The world tries to do it for us. Uh, if you watch TV, um, I don't watch a lot of TV, but uh, do you ever see commercials on television and some of them just don't make any sense? Um, have, have you seen the Lincoln commercial with Matthew McConaughey? Has anybody seen this thing? I don't get it. He, he's driving along, and he's doing this weird thing with his hand. You know, I've liked Lincoln's since before I was famous, just because it was cool. All, all right. Thanks for telling us, Matthew McConaughey, right? There's this one where he is sitting in the middle of, like, the middle of Texas, and there's this giant longhorn steer standing in the road, and he, like, has this conversation with the bull, and it's like, then he drives away. It's like, what does this mean? Like, 
You used to know what commercials were. They'd say, hey, are you looking for a car? You need to buy our car. It's fantastic. Here's why you need to buy our car. But they're approaching it differently. Do you know what they're really trying to do? Lincoln is trying to tell you, if you want to be cool, if you want to be like Matthew McConaughey, you need to drive a Lincoln. What it's doing is it's, it's creating this sense of discontent in us that if, if we had a Lincoln, maybe we'd be as cool as Matthew McConaughey. And you think it's silly, but think about it. Look at almost any commercial you see. What it's doing is it's creating a discontent in us that says, if, if you just used our shampoo, if you just had this car, if you just lived this way, your life would be better. You would like you more if things were different in your circumstances, situation. And advertisers are paid to make us feel discontent with our lives and make us feel like our life would be better if we just had something or did something or took part in something. But that's not the case at all. Sometimes we will allow things like our homes to define who we are. And I've done that before. We had a really nice house. We lived in this great place. And I took a lot of pride in that. And you know what happened? <laughs> God said, I think that's become a little more valuable to you than it needs to be. And he pulled that rug out from under us. And I'm so grateful that he did. Um, maybe you allow your car to define you or your job or your family to define you. I don't know if you've noticed, a lot of times when I introduce myself, uh, still from the stage, I'll say, hey, I'm Mel, I'm one of the pastors here at the Summit Church. And, um, and it's not that big a deal, but hardly ever will I say, hey, everyone, I'm the senior pastor of the Summit Church. I'm Mel Massingale. It's nice to meet you. When I meet people in public, I don't say, hey, I'm, Mel, I'm the pastor at the Summit Church. I'm Mel Massingale. I usually say, hey, I'm Mel. Nice to meet you. And if I invite somebody to church, typically I'll go, hey, I know this great church that I'm involved in. Man, I love this church. You need to check it out sometime. And I know I'm going to have somebody walk through the door someday that's going to be like, you're the pastor here? Dude, you should have said, you know what I mean? But this is why I do that, because as much as I love what I do, and as much as I love the people I get to do this with, this does not define my reality of who I am. I, I, my job is to serve as the pastor of this church and to, to shepherd people and to love the people of this body, but that is not the definition of who I am. That's just something I do. Does that make sense? And we, are, we walk in this place that we say, this is who I am. Hey, I'm Mel. Nice to meet you. What's your name? I'm Jim. Hey, Jim, what do you do for a living? And what are we doing? We're we're subconsciously identifying each other by what we do instead of who we are. Women are much better about that than men are. Uh, women, a lot of times, instead of asking what you do, they'll say, oh, you have a family, you have kids, you, and I don't, I'm not trying to be stereotypical, but they go there. Very rarely do I hear women meet each other, and the woman says, so what do you do for a living? Like, sometimes they get around to that, but it's usually like the fourth question or the fifth question or down the line. Guys, it's right out of the chute. Hey, what's your name? Nice to meet you. What do you do for a living? It's right there because we define ourselves by what we do and not necessarily who we are. You know, I mentioned families. All these things that we talked about are good things. None of these things are bad things. I want you to have a car. It's important to be able to drive to church and get to work, right? Um, I want you to have a house to live in. It's important to have a safe place to live. All these things are important. But it's interesting that Todd mentioned idols during worship. Um, idols, we typically think of idols as bad things, that we take a bad thing and we worship it. Like we've got a shrine in our house to some, you know, little, uh, you know, statue or an idol. And that's not how idolatry works. For most of us, idolatry isn't worshiping something that's bad, but it's taking something that's good and making it supreme. It's saying, here's a good thing like my family, and I'm going to value that above all other things. And that's where idolatry creeps into our life, whether we realize it or not. And that's where the problem is. It's taking something good and making it supreme in our lives. And a lot of times that's where we find our identity. 
We say, hey, this is, this is who I am. My house is who I am. And we take pride in that. My job is who I am. My family, if my kids are successful in school, if my kids are successful in the athletic field, that defines who I am. How much pressure does that put on our kids when we do that? <laughs> we say, hey, uh, I'm going to hold my child back for a year so that they have an advantage athletically. And if you did that, I'm not trying to criticize, but I guess I am criticizing you. I just didn't mean to criticize you. Um, I've got a 20-year-old freshman in high school, and they're going to dominate this year, right? Like, it's silly. What do we do? We find our identity in places we shouldn't. We value things above the way they should be valued. And as a result, our identity is messed up. We've got an identity crisis in our nation. And it's interesting because uh, Paul talks a lot about idols. He talks a lot about idolatry. And, And one of the people groups he talked to about that was the church in Ephesus. And he starts his church in Ephesus, he plants it, and, and they get into all kind of wickedness. Um, there, there's occult activity, there, it's very polytheistic, so they're worshiping multiple gods. It's the middle of the Roman Empire, and so all these crazy things are going on. And Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, it's in Ephesians, and, and he's pretty direct about who they are and, and who God is to them. And so let me start by reading in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip over there. If you've got your device, you can get there however electronically you need to. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, and I'm going to break this up verse by verse. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin. I'm going to stop right there. We're not even through a verse yet. And you were dead in trespasses and sin. What Paul is doing is he is identifying not who we are as believers, but who we were before Christ. He says, before we knew Christ, we were dead in our trespasses, not because of inherently what we had done necessarily, but because of how we were born. We were born under Adam. And because of that, we, we were part of that sin nature. And we, there's nothing good about us. So he's saying we were born in sin, we were sinners, and we were dead in our sin. A few years ago, I preached this passage of scripture um, on October 31st, a few years ago on a Wednesday night at my church. And uh, the title of the message was The Walking Dead. And we talked about how we were all dead and we were all walking around. We see this in verse 2. It says, in which you once walked. So we were, literally, we were walking around as dead people. And if you're, if you're a follower of Christ in here, you know the difference between what you were like and what you lived like and, and what your lifestyle was like before Christ and how when you really came to know Jesus, you came alive. You began to breathe for the first time. You, you saw things differently for the first time. And this is what Paul is describing. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You know what it says? Following the course of this world, the, the image that you need to have in your mind is the image of a stream, maybe a fast-moving stream. If you ever took a leaf and you threw that leaf in the stream, the leaf isn't going to sink to the bottom. The leaf, leaf is not going to immediately go to the edge of the stream. That leaf is going to be carried wherever that stream carries it. And when we don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what happens is the stream of our culture will carry us wherever it will carry us. We have no control. We have no direction on it. We are in the middle of the stream, and it is taking us wherever it wants to go. So the culture of our world will take us places that we don't necessarily want to go when we're submitted to it and say, you know what, um, I'm not going to be submitted to God. I'm going to fall into this stream, and I'm going to follow it wherever this course would take me. That's the picture that we're trying to paint here. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and I'm not talking about Satine from the clip. Um, what this is very, in a very real way trying to say is you are either a follower of Jesus or you're a follower 
of the devil. And you're like, well, Mel, that's a little tough because I've never worshipped the devil before. And the truth is, uh, anytime we are worshipping something other than God, the devil is glorified by that. And that, that's hard. And you're sitting here going, well, wait a second, man. I thought we were all about love and acceptance and mercy. And we are. But we have to understand there's no middle ground. You can't kind of be a follower of Jesus. <laughs> you can't kind of, like my wife and I, we are married. We are committed to each other. I can't kind of be married to her. Does that make sense? If I decided to do something crazy and I went out on a Friday night and, uh, and met some girl, she said, are you married? And I go, kind of. My hope is she would, like, punch me in the face, right? You can't kind of be married. You can't kind of be in a relationship. We are either in relationship with Jesus or we are not in relationship with him. We're either worshiping God or we're worshiping something else. And if anything other than God has our affection, we, we are guilty of idolatry and we are worshiping a false god. Does that make sense? Okay. See, you're, you're so glad you came today. You're like, what does this have to do with Wreck-It Ralph? We'll come back to it, I promise. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Um, when it says sons of disobedience, it's reminiscent of language you see in the Old Testament. Um, you see in the Old Testament the phrase sons of lawlessness and, and several times. or um, and, and basically it's the same kind of thought, but it's used in conjunction with the Israelites when they were disobedient to God. When they were saying, God... We don't care what you say, we're going to do our own thing. And so what this is saying is just as disobedient as the Israelites were in the Old Testament, just in the same manner that they disobeyed God, that's what we're guilty of today, that we are sons of disobedience whenever we tell God, I know better than you, I'm going to live my life my own way. And he, he's equating that to the same thing. If you look in Luke, there are several places it says that we're children of light or sons of light, and there's a... There's a contrast between those two things, son of disobedience versus son of light. A son of light is a child of God that, that we bring light into the world. The son of disobedience, it's all about what we get, and it's all about our, how we want to live. And so he, he compares that, and he says, we are sons of disobedience before Christ. Ephesians 2.3 says, among whom we all, lived, uh, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, before we knew Jesus Christ, we were all guilty of doing whatever we felt like doing. No matter how nice you are, no matter how moral you are, no matter how good you think you are, if you are without Christ in your life, at the end of the day, you still probably do what you want to do. You probably are still driven by what you feel and what you want and what your flesh desires. Now, there is, it's easy to say this, but there is a campus full of college students over there. Not all of them. we got some really good IEP students. But there are a bunch, thousands of students that this just described their Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. That they do exactly what they want to do. That their flesh drives them. It's not their mind. It's not their thought. We've got a police officer that, that comes to church here, and I mentioned to him that my wife stumbled upon a guy. <laughs> Can I tell this story? It's too late. I'm already telling it. She took the dog out last night about 1130, and I was already in bed, and she came to bed and said, hey, babe, babe, there's somebody in our yard. What's he doing? She said, I think he's peeing. <laughs> she said, either that or he's like, you know, casing the joint and trying to break in. Well, let me go look. So I went downstairs and looked, and there wasn't anybody around. So I told him the police officer today. Um, he was walking in, and I told him that story. And he said, you know what? I stopped, pulled up on a girl who's doing the same thing. There was a girl that was going about, you know, outside, right in the middle, right in the street, visible for everybody. And the truth is, why did she do that? She's smart enough to know better. But do you know why she did it? She felt like it. 
I need to go to the bathroom. I'm going to go to the bathroom right now, right? As stupid as that sounds, as silly as it sounds, you go, well, they're college students. They're stupid. They're young. What do they know? Don't we do the same thing every single day? Well, I know I shouldn't talk like this to my wife, but I feel like it. I, she deserves it. I deserve better than this. What are we doing? We're being driven by our flesh. We're being driven by what we feel. So in that moment, we're not any better than we were before we knew Christ because we're driven by what we feel and what we want and what our flesh desires, just like the rest of mankind. And when we read this passage of Scripture, it's a little bit, it's kind of a downer, isn't it? You read this and you go, oh, God. Man, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, we're all terrible. We're walking dead and sinners and depressing, right? But then the next verse is the payoff verse. It says, but God. And I love that. He says, this is the situation. This is what your identity was. This is what you looked like. But God. <laughs> you were a dead man walking. You were, you were a zombie. Nothing was going to go right for you. But God. This is what your identity was. This is what you look like. This is what your future held. But God. And this is what it says in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. And how many parents of daughters think, man, I would love for my daughter to marry a doctor someday, right? Like, does anybody think, man, I would love for my daughter to marry a hobo someday? If there's a homeless guy in town, maybe my daughter can marry that guy. No, why? Why do we want somebody to marry, why do we want our kids to marry a rich person? Because we want them to be taken care of, right? We don't want them to have needs. We want them to be supported. We want them to live comfortably. And so if you look at this verse and it says, um, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he lo with which he loved us, let's change that. It said, but God being rich in money because of the great love with which he loved us. Let's, let's say for a second, we were approaching it like that. And said, okay, our Heavenly Father, he is rich beyond our wildest dreams. And he wants to bless his children. Right? And you're like, where do I sign up for that? Right? Um, he wants to bless his children. And he loves you so much, he's going to pour it out on you. Because he sees your need and he wants to bless you. Like, I can get behind that. Why? Because you have a need. And our Heavenly Father has resources. He has an abundance of resources. So let's go to our Heavenly Father for what we need. Now, let's flip that back to mercy. Because sometimes we look at our financial need in our life and we go, man, if I just had a little more money, my life would be good. But we fail to recognize that our real need in our life that we have is we need the mercy of God in our lives. We are desperately in need of mercy. And our Father has an abundance of mercy. More mercy than we can ever comprehend it's coming out his ears. He is dying to give the mercy away, but sometimes we don't want it. Because what we want instead is a nicer car or a bigger house. And we say, God, why don't you bless me financially? But we don't need a financial blessing. What we need is God's mercy in our life. We need to have a relationship with him. We need to know him more intimately. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He loves you so much that he is going to lavish his mercy on you. He's going to give you access to every bit of mercy he's got. It's yours. Verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is what he says. He says, and I've said this before, at your very worst, okay, don't think about your best day when you were nice to everyone and you let that person in in traffic. You're like, yeah, go ahead. And you're like, yes, I'm a great guy. I just let that guy in in traffic, right? Even the guy that like speeds up in the work zone and like tries to squeeze in, you let that guy over too. You're like, all right, go ahead. And you're like, yeah. You, you were nice to your family. You were good to your kid. You didn't kick the dog at all, right? Like you're feeling good 
on your best day. That's not what God's talking about. He's not saying, I love you on your best day. God's saying, on your worst day, when you were most ashamed of what you did and how you acted and the way you thought, the way you responded, when you did something that was so despicable and so dishonoring to God that you were ashamed that anyone would find out, God saw you on that day and he loved you like crazy. God sees you in your desperation and in your failures and your hurt and your pain, and he thinks you are lovely and beautiful and worth dying for. That is the God we serve. That he's, he's not here to crush you. He's here to love you and support you and forgive you and make you his own. That is the God we serve. He's rich in mercy, but even when we were dead in our trespasses, he loved us. Romans 5.8 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It says, but God shows us his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not on our best day, on our worst day, God loves us. When you were the biggest failure ever. I, I talked to a lady the other day, and she said, you know, I, I don't know if I can ever get my husband to come to church. He just feels like he's got to get himself cleaned up or get himself up to this point before he can come to church. I said, that is the craziest thing ever. Because none of us can clean ourselves up enough to be worthy of God's love. None of us can like scrub enough places or clean enough or dress up enough or, or look good enough to be presentable to God. It is by his grace and by his mercy that he accepts us and calls us his son and daughter, that he loves us and welcomes us as his own. You know, and, and a couple weeks ago, Garland Owensby was here, and he talked just a little bit about adoption in Rome. And I think one of the biggest disconnects in the Christian world is our understanding of what it means to be adopted by Christ and by God. That, that um, in ancient Rome, what they would do is, is they had very strict laws and taxes on big families. So it, it was difficult for them to have large families unless they were super wealthy. And so as a result, they would only have one or two or maybe three kids for the most part. And they needed a male heir. And if they didn't have one, they would adopt one. And they didn't usually adopt it as a child. They would wait until they got older. And, and it wasn't uncommon for a younger man to adopt an older man. My daughter just snickered on the front row. It sounds silly. Like, Pastor Dick, I would love you to be my son. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to hold you on my lap. And No, right? It sounds silly. But what they were doing essentially is saying, you know what? I've done a lot in my life. I've accomplished a lot in my life. And, and I'm going to make you my heir. I'm going to make you my son. The title I have, the authority I have, the power I have, the, the wealth I have, I'm passing that on to you. And what we have to understand is that in Christ... We are joint heirs with him. We are seated with him. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him, talking about Jesus, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So as Jesus is raised from the dead, we are raised from the dead, both here on earth, that we have a new life, and in the kingdom to come, we have new life. But he's saying, and we're seated with him. So some of us picture ourselves as beggars at the table of God, and we're just waiting for a crumb to fall. And maybe if a crumb falls from the table of God, we can gobble that up. We'll have just, oh, there's a little bit. We'll, oh, yes, thank you, God. Right? I'm just happy to be here, God. But God says, you are looking at yourself the wrong way. Your identity is wrong because you are not supposed to be a beggar at the table of God, what you are supposed to be is a child seated at the table with God. That everything that's on the table, everything that God has provided is at your disposal. And we've got to, I want to be careful how I say this, that, that we have a type of authority that Jesus has. We're not begging God. 
We are children of God. So in the same way that, that we pray to Jesus and Jesus makes intercession for us at the right hand of, of God, we can make intercession to God because we are children of God. There's not a thing that my daughter wants that she will hesitate to ask for. Do you know why? Because I'm her father. And if, if she asks for it and I tell you people about it, I'll probably have to get it for her, okay? <laughs> Don't forget, she's still waiting on the Camaro. So if anybody is interested. So she knows, she can ask me. Why? Because there's a relationship and I'm her father in the same way that she has no problem asking me. We have to have that same relationship with God and be able to say, God, I know I've got authority in you, that there's no authority in my name. Because there's not a person in this place that prays in the name of Mel Massingale. In the name of Mel Massengale, amen. Nobody, why? Because there's no authority in my name. There's no power in my name. That's why we pray in the authority of Jesus. But the same authority Jesus has to go to the throne, we have to go to the throne. If you are a child of God and you, you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you have authority to pray. And your authority, this is a secret. I, I don't want to tell anybody, but I'm going to share it with you. Your authority is just as powerful as my authority. Even Pastor Dick, Right? I don't have special authority because I'm the pastor. We all have authority because we're children of God. So the question is why? Why would God do that? It answers in verse 7. It says, so that in, the age, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. God is going to show us off to the world. He is going to demonstrate his kindness and his love and his mercy for us to the world, the whole world is going to see how much he loves us, and they're going to marvel at the kindness of God when they see it at work in our lives. That's why God is doing it. That's why he loves you so much, because he wants everybody to know how much he loves them and how much he cares for them. This is what it says in verse 8, and this is a passage that I've read several times, even in the last few weeks. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast for we are his workmanship. I want you to remember that word. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God created us. We are his workmanship. And why did he create us? He created us to walk in the good works that he has placed for us. You're sitting here today and you might think you're invaluable. You might think you're worthless. You might think you're not good. But let me tell you, your heavenly father created you for good works, to walk in good works. Why? Because his goodness is shining through you. Because you might say, I'm not good. But do you know what? God's good. And if he's alive in you, you are good by proxy. You are good by default. That's how God works. See, in our lives, there are four things, and you might argue with me, but there are four things, in my opinion, that determine something's value. One is supply and demand. Um, if you have, a, one, you have a piece of gum, and I've got, like, dragon breath, and this is the only piece of gum in the place, I might pay you some money for that gum, right? But if everybody in the place has gum and they're willing to give me gum, why would I pay for gum? Does that make sense? So supply and demand dictate the value of something. If, if there is rarity or scarcity of something and there is a high demand for that something, then there's probably going to be a high price paid for that something. Have you seen some of the auctions, that, like, Sotheby, uh, uh, like uh, Sotheby's and things like that, where they'll have, like, a baseball card from 1909. It'll sell for, like, $2.5 million. Like, if only my mom hadn't thrown my baseball cards away, you know? Some probably aren't 1909. There's a couple of you that are, but not very many. But right? Scarcity and demand determine something's value. What else determines something's value? Um, well, the price paid. I, I tell people this all the time. It doesn't matter if you think something is worth a million dollars. If I'm only going to give you 200 bucks for it, then it's worth 200 bucks. It's not worth $2 million. Does that make sense? 
So the price somebody will pay determines its value. We also see that the craftsmanship, if something is built and it's beautiful and it's well built, it's going to have value no, no matter what the material is or how it's made or who made it. It's, it's going to have value because of its craftsmanship. And the last thing is the identity of the creator determines something value. Um, if I painted a picture, I said, who would like to pay me $5 million for this painting? Anyone? Anyone? Probably nobody would. But if I had um, a, a Jackson Pollock and we auctioned it off, it'd probably bring millions of dollars. Five million would probably be scratched the surface of what it's worth. If I had a Da Vinci, if I had The Last Supper, if I had a masterpiece, because you'd identify the creator, you'd know these important artists. You'd say, that's worth money because of the creator of that piece, right? In the same way, we have to understand our value, that you are one of a kind. You are God's craftsmanship, and you are in high demand. The enemy wants your soul but so does Jesus. And God said, you know what? I'm going to pay the highest price I can because that person is worth it. Because I love that person so much. I love him. I love her so much. I'm going to give my child for them. There's high demand. There's scarcity. There's a high price paid for you. We've already said you are his workmanship. And you might look at yourself, man, I'm junk, but you're not. You are God's workmanship, created for good works, to walk in those good works that he laid out before you hand. And the last thing is the identity of the creator. Um, you may be wondering about this piece right here. And I hesitated to bring it out today. I was wondering if I should or not, but I decided I would. You might look at this and go, well, that's a ceramic piece, and it is. And you might be sitting there thinking, it's not the nicest piece of artwork I've ever seen in my life. You might be sitting there thinking, the color I'm not sure about some imperfections there. If I put this up for auction, I don't know how much it would bring. If I put it in the artist's hand here in town, probably wouldn't bring a whole lot. But do you know why it's valuable? Because on the bottom it says, Abby M. See, the creator of this piece of artwork makes it valuable to me. You couldn't give me $10,000 for this. Why? Because the creator the identity of the creator of this piece of art matters. It, it creates the value. See, you might look at this and say it's imperfect, but I look at it and I see the value because the identity of the creator. So today, some of you are looking at your life. And you say, man, my life is not perfect. My life is a mess. My life doesn't look like I wish it looked. This is how I'm defined, but I wish I was defined like this. I, I wish my life looked, I wish all these things, if only... Can I tell you something? Your life isn't valuable because you're perfect. Your life is valuable because of who created you. Your life is valuable because the identity of the creator in your life. You might look at yourself and say, I'm nobody. I'm imperfect. That's okay. God doesn't love you because you're perfect. God loves you because you're his. Where are you placing your identity? Where are you finding your identity? Because if it's anything but Jesus Christ, your identity is going to be off. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us at our very worst. Thank you that even though we're a mess, we're a train wreck of human beings sometimes, and we do stupid things, and we do selfish things. God, I thank you that you love us. Lord, there's nothing more you want for us than to know you and have a relationship with you. So Lord, I pray that today in this place, Lord, we, we begin to shift our focus from the things we have and the things we do, and let us focus on the things that are really important in this life. 
Let us find our identity not in external things or our circumstances, but let us find our identity in you and you alone. I pray that you have your way with us over the next few minutes. Now, if you would, keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. I just want to ask today, if you're sitting in this place and you're listening to me and you're, maybe you're watching online and you're hearing my voice and you say, Mel, my life is not right with God. I'm not a child of God. I'm not following Jesus. And today I want to get some things right with him. Would you pray for me? Would you just put your hand up and say, that's me. Pray for me today. I want to be a child of God. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Thank you up there in my left in the balcony. Thank you. Another hand in the balcony. Who else says that's me? Just a few more seconds. Things aren't right with God. I need to get some things right today. I'm not going to leave here in the same state I'm in. I want to find my identity in Jesus. Thank you over here on my right. Appreciate it, ma'am. Maybe you're watching online. And you say, Mel, I know I need to get some things right. I don't know where you're watching from, but the Holy Spirit is right next to you. And I just want to pray with you right now. So I want every person in this room just to repeat this prayer. If you're watching online, repeat this prayer with me. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me when I felt unlovable. Today, I take on your mercy and your grace, and I'm a new creation. I'm turning away from my old life, and I'm never going back to it. My old identity is gone, and my new identity is found in you. I'm going to do my best to chase after you every day of my life. Thank you for loving me, in Jesus' name. Now listen, we had several people that just raised their hand and said, hey, that's me. I need to get some things right with God. Can we just celebrate that and tell the Lord how much we love him today? That's awesome. Now, this might be a little embarrassing for you, but if you're sitting in this room and you say, Mel, I, I kind of struggle with my identity at times, putting my identity in the wrong things, and I need to find my identity in Jesus and him alone. Mel, you're a Christian, but today you recognize you need to make that right, you need to make that shift. If that's you, would you put your hand up and say, pray for me? And I just want to pray over all of you as we close out. Thank you. That's hard. Some of you are like, I'm, everybody's looking. I'm not putting my hand up. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Let me pray over all of you, and uh, we'll go back into worship for just a moment. Father, thank you so much that we can find our identity in you. Lord, I pray for every person in this place that struggles seeing themselves in a way that truly glorifies you. Lord, I pray that we would not find our identity in any external circumstance, in our job, in our family, Lord, in our possessions. But Lord, I pray that we would place our identity and our hope fully and wholly in you. And Lord, I pray that we would not be defined any other way than as your child. So Lord, have your way with us. I pray your blessing on every person in this place and every person that's watching online. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now do me a favor, we're going to do one last song of worship, and then I'm going to come back up and close this out in just a moment. But we're going to stand and worship together, and if you need prayer of any kind, uh, you can join us on either side of the stage for prayer, uh, or um, you can submit a prayer card. You can email us at prayersummittogether.com. Let us know about that, but we want to pray with you today. But before we do that, let's worship together. Why don't you stand and let's worship.